Well, if you've got your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to Luke's Gospel. Uh, this morning, we are going to be uh, and spend some time uh, in chapter 2, looking at verses 22 through 38. Uh, as you guys are finding your place there, uh, I just want to remind you about uh, our change in schedule the next couple of weeks. Uh, this is typically that time of year where everybody scatters and goes and visits family and uh, travels and does things. And so uh, this uh, coming Christmas Eve, we'll have our Christmas Eve service. Uh, I want to invite you to attend. It's always uh, just a, an incredible time together. Uh, that'll be at five o'clock. And then the following day, uh, Christmas Day falls on a Sunday. And so that morning, uh, we're going to have just one service at 10 o'clock. Uh, we'll combine both the traditional uh, and the contemporary as well. There'll be no Bible study uh, that day. And then the following Sunday is New Year's Day. And so we'll go back to uh, our, our original service times, but then uh, there will be no on-campus Bible study during that time as well to give our teachers a break uh, and to let you guys uh, travel a little bit to and from. Uh, I won't tell you which one of my kids uh, said this a couple of weeks ago. They figured out uh, that this year uh, Christmas Day is on a Sunday. And the comment that I got was, Dad, do we really have to go to church on Christmas Day? And uh, I said, unfortunately you do because I'm the pastor and we may be the only ones here, but we are coming to church uh, on Sunday and uh, all the toys, all the, the traditions, all the things uh, that we do, we'll, we'll save uh, for afterwards when we get home as well. well. Speaking of traditions, one of the things that I love about Advent season, uh, being married to a creative wife, we enjoy doing certain things with our kids on an annual basis. And so in the middle of Advent season, we do lots of things that we would say are a part of our family tradition, their, their rituals, if you will, there are things that we look forward to of every year whenever we celebrate a Christmas. I randomly asked my wife uh, yesterday, uh, you know, Advent is this season of anticipation. You're, you're anticipating the birth of Christ. You're anticipating the presence that you would get, uh, especially when you were younger. And uh, I, I got my fair share of presents, but uh, we were talking last night. I said, Haley, what is the, what is the weirdest present you've ever gotten from a relative? Now, my wife, uh, her maiden name is Zinkgraf, all right? And so they say that with a, with a tough German accent in New Braunfels, where she's from. And uh, one Christmas, uh, she was blessed enough by her grandmother, uh, who was a good German, and who bought all the kids actual lederhosen, all right? So leather and everything like went all the way in. And I said, you know, one of my favorite things to get from extended relatives, do you guys still pass along those big buckets of popcorn? Is anybody still doing that now? I haven't gotten one of those in a really long time, but, but you receive those, those gifts and sometimes they're unexpected. Sometimes you, you planned on it. Sometimes you knew from that relative, from that aunt or that uncle that you were gonna get the same thing over and over and over and over again. But Advent is one of those seasons where we anticipate and we expect certain things and traditions and, and rites. And I think sometimes in the midst of all those rituals, in the midst of all those traditions, that it is quite possible to get ensnared in the midst of those and to miss Jesus completely. Back in 2007, there was a famous violinist by the name of Joshua Bell. And Joshua was identified by one writer. He says he is easily America's greatest classical musician. He played a three and a half million dollar violin. And he was brought in to Washington, D.C. To, to give a concert. And so this news corporation said, listen, we want to do an experiment with Joshua. And so the day after the concerts, 
We're gonna take him down to the metro. We're gonna set him up on a bucket and in a chair. We're gonna put some, some seed money out, if you will, and we're just gonna have Joshua, the greatest violinist of his time, who was selling out places like Carnegie Hall and, and concert venues. People were paying two, three, four hundred dollars a ticket. Let's put him down in the dusty subway and let's have him play and let's see if anyone notices. And so he sat there for hours and hours and he, and he played and, and after about six hours he, he stopped and had somewhere around seven or eight people that acknowledged him and, and after that six hours a man who was playing a three and a half million dollar violin who had sold out his concert the day before he made a whopping $32.17. In fact only one person that walked in the subway actually figured out who he was because they had attended the concert prior to that and he was the individual that went ahead and put $20 of the 32. You see I think it's quite possible that in the midst of Advent season for to miss some of the greatest things in our life because our heart is not looking for those right things. In the midst of Advent, getting lost in all the ritual and all the tradition, all the things that we see, it is quite possible for us to miss Jesus. And in Luke chapter two, beginning in verse 22, we see a moment in time or an instance where people were, were lost in the, in the ritual. They were caught up in, in all of the things that they were supposed to be called to do. And, and Jesus comes and, and he's presented in the temple. And I wanna pick up reading in verse 22. So follow along with me where the text says this. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. For as it is written, the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and he was a righteous and devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple and he went to the parents and brought the child Jesus to him according to the custom of the law. And he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said the following, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation. So a couple of things are going on here in this moment. You see, all the way back in Leviticus chapter 12, God commanded the Israelites. He commanded all the God-fearing Jews that, that at a certain time of their life, at their age, you were gonna take your oldest to the temple and you're gonna dedicate him to the Lord. And what you're doing in that moment is you're remembering all the way back in Exodus where the, the angel of death comes through and he passes over all of the houses that were coated in goat's blood. And they were called to remember what it is that God had done, that he had spared the oldest son from death. And so he commands them in Leviticus 12, he says, you're now gonna go to the temple and you're gonna, you're gonna dedicate them and you're gonna commit them to the Lord. And so they go and, and there's a couple of things that I want you to notice about Mary and Joseph in this instance. You see, when they usually would go, they would come and offer a, a Passover lamb if you, if you were wealthy and you had some kind of means. But, but if you didn't have a lot of money, you didn't have a lot of means, you would typically purchase the lesser of the animals and the sacrifice. So you would get the pigeons or the turtle doves. You would take something that was much smaller. 
And so this shows us a couple of things that I want to remind us about Jesus this morning. First and foremost, when he comes to the temple and they offer the sacrifice that they do, it speaks to the poverty that Jesus was born into. And so you have this, this moment in time where you've got the, the king of kings who is going to offer up salvation. He's going to reconcile us, humanity, to the father, the ruler and, and reigner over all of the universe, who at this moment, he sits at the right hand of the father and he rules supremely. Yet in this moment, he is born to parents that, that don't have means. And so he's essentially just born directly into poverty. And one theologian said it this way, when we look at the status of Jesus and, and what he was born into, it's a reminder of a couple of things for us. First and foremost, that poverty is not a sin and it's not shameful in and of itself. Oftentimes you'll, you'll hear uh, certain kinds of preachers and teachers that, that because you're walking and living in sin, therefore the result of that and the consequence of that is that you will now be faced and forced to live into poverty. Poverty is not a sin and it's not shameful in and of itself. Poverty does not show a sign of God's disapproval on someone. Jesus being born into the midst of that and had the complete favor and honor of the Father. Number three is this. He says, poverty does not prevent a single person from worshiping God. I think one of the reminders in the midst of this is Jesus is, permitted, is, is, is presented there in that temple. That no matter if you have great means or little means, no matter if you have much wealth or no wealth, none of those circumstances should control or dictate or affect how and when you worship. Your circumstances should not control in the midst of those things. And so Jesus comes into the world, born in a manger. His parents come, present him to the temple. Now I want you to notice a couple of things that are, that are going on because Jesus and his family, when they go to the temple for purification to, to offer the sacrifice, Jesus and his family were not the only ones present. New Testament theologians would contend that at any given time in the midst of this temple, that, it, that it's quite possible that you could have had a couple of other hundreds families that, that were there doing the very same thing that, that Mary and Joseph were doing. Now you say, well, why is that interesting? And why is that something that should be noteworthy? Is because here you have families in the midst of offering their firstborn to the Lord, dedicating them to the Lord, pointing to the fact that someday God is going to send his son, the Messiah, the savior of the world, he's gonna send him into the world to reconcile us to the father. And so you've got moms and dads and, and strangers that are, that are talking to their kids. One day, this Jesus, one day, he's coming. One day, he will, he will come and he will redeem and he will make all the wrongs right. And in that moment, in that very room, at that time in history, they worshiped and they made offerings and they made sacrifices that were pointing to the fact that one day Jesus was gonna come, but yet in the midst of all of that, they had no idea that he was literally, physically, humanly in the room. That the savior of the world that they longed for, that they hoped for, that they, they prayed that God would send quickly, he, he was already there. Now you notice within the story, we have really essentially two characters. One we've talked about, Simeon, and another named Anna. But if you notice with me in verse 25, this man in Jerusalem, 
whose name was Simeon. His, he was righteous and he was devout. In other words, Simeon was a man who, who had a heart for God. He sought to do the, the right thing. He was committed to the things that God wanted him to be committed to. And he sits there and it says that he waits for the consolation of Israel. We'll get back to that in a moment. And the Holy Spirit comes upon Simeon. And so the Spirit of God descends on him and it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And I think one thing that's noteworthy of this is, is the idea or the truth behind it that the only way we are able to actually recognize Jesus in our own lives is if the Spirit of God illumines, if the Spirit of God speaks, if the Spirit of God reveals. That the only way that, that I'm capable of, of seeing God and, and knowing God, not if, it's not because I can, I can go find him somewhere or climb a mountain or descend into a valley, that the only way that I can see God is if God allows me to see him. The Bible uses a metaphor. He, he talks about the blind will see. And oftentimes we think when it comes to our relationship with God, we, we think that we just need to put our contacts in or we need to put our glasses on, that we just have blurry vision there for a moment. But the metaphor in the Bible over and over and over again is that I am blind. I am not wounded, I am dead. It is God that makes me alive. It is God that allows me to see. And so the Spirit of God comes upon Simeon. And Simeon sees, and the Lord told him that, that he would not die until he had seen this, this savior of the world. And so the irony here in this moment is that Simeon, who was a devout man, who was righteous and he was just, and he was, had a man after God's own heart, was in the midst of all of these other people that were going through the rituals and the sacrifices and the motions. And, and here comes Jesus in physical form, presented at the temple by his parents. And yet it is Simeon that, that sees. It is Simeon that, that knows who, who he's in the presence of. But there's another character that emerges in the story. And, and we go on in verse uh, 33, and it says, and his father and his mother, they, they marveled at what was said about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and, and then says to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. A sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. In verse 36, this prophetess, Anna, daughter comes in, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years having lived with her husband seven years and, and when she was a virgin and then as a widow, she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting, prayer and night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna comes in. Having been married just seven years and her husband dies, she spends the next 84 years of her life living alone a widow by herself. She's in the temple, she's, she's waiting and she sees the commotion with Simeon. She, she becomes aware because the spirit of God begins to descend on her and so the Lord begins to, to put on her heart to go and to speak and then she begins to rejoice. And so there's a couple of things that I want you to notice. Number one is that Simeon and Anna were both very old in age. And Simeon and Anna both waited a really, really long time for God to send the Messiah, for God to send the Savior. 
And this tells us a couple of things about how we are to, to live our own lives in this season of Advent where we anticipate the coming of Christ, yet at the same time, we are waiting. We're waiting on, on something. Every person in this room is, is waiting for God to do a couple of things in your life. It, it may be to, to show you where you're supposed to go and, and what job you're supposed to take. It, it may be a, a larger life decision. We're waiting on God to resolve conflict in our marriages, in our homes, in our workplaces, with our neighbors. We're waiting on God to, to deliver us financially. We're waiting on God to, to give the assignment, to do what it is that we're supposed to do. We're, we're waiting on God to, to heal and and to make our loved ones whole and, and to show a miracle. We're waiting on God to, to right all the wrongs within this world. We're waiting on God to, to show himself to be a God of great justice and, and mercy. We're, we're waiting on him to deliver and to answer. And we find ourselves in the midst of this in a, in a season. And it observationally, what it does is it just reminds us of this really simple but essential truth that waiting is a key component of the Christian life. It's really the place that God puts us. He puts us in places where he doesn't so much answer the prayer immediately, but he makes us wait. He, he doesn't respond to you in a, in a way that you would want, but yet he, he puts his hand up gently and he says, wait, not, not now, not, not yet, but maybe someday. And he says, just enter into this season. It's a, it's a demonstration that God comes to those who wait on him, who, who, who understand that, that this is the posture and, and that this often is the rhythm. We, we are a, a people that are easily gratified and we want quick satisfaction in life. We wanna check off our, our boxes on our list and to meet our goals and to, and to cross off the objective. Yet in the midst of all that, what God says is I'm not gonna let you check off the box quickly. I'm not gonna let you cross it off your list too fast. Instead, I'm just going to have you wait. And you wanna know why he, he does that? Because he does more in the, in the postures and in the seasons of waiting in our hearts than he does when he answers every request that we have. That when we enter into rhythms of our life where we're forced to wait on him, what God begins to do then in, the, in those moments is he begins to, to grow our, our trust in him. He begins to grow our, our faith in him. Sure, we may feel frustrated at times. We, we may say, God, have you, have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? It, it may even feel that way, but in the midst of the waiting, just as Simeon and just as Anna, they, they wait and the spirit of God descends and he answers them and he, and he meets with them all the while for those 84 years in Anna's life. He is growing her in righteousness. He is growing her faith. He, he is developing her trust and she's walking with him. Simeon, all his days, he grows in righteousness. He, he commits to the mission that God wants him to live and God begins to do something in their lives in the midst of that waiting that they would not have been able to do had he answered the prayer in the beginning. What season are, are you in in your life right now? Simeon and Anna, they're, they're a testimony in Luke 2 that, that God doesn't forget his people. He just may make you wait a little bit longer than you want to. 
They're a testimony that, that God hears the, the cries of the righteous and he, and he meets with them, but, but he meets with us on our own terms. He meets with us through Christ and he's given us his word. This is how he meets, that the bulk of our lives, waiting is a key component of the Christian life. But number two is this. Simeon being righteous and Simeon being devout, every one of those, those Jewish worshipers that had gathered in that temple, they, they didn't quite get what they had been longing for and asking for. And so what that teaches us in this moment is that oftentimes in the waiting, when God answers the prayer, the answer oftentimes does not match our expectations. What we hoped for and, and what we longed for, what we prayed for specifically, the answer that God often gives his children is it does not match the expectation or the very thing that perhaps that we asked for specifically. It's like getting the, the leader hose in at, at Christmas. It's the gift that you're like, what am, I gonna, what am I gonna do with this? It's the tub of popcorn that you don't finish and it, and it grows stale after a while. It's the, the thing that changes. He oftentimes does not answer our prayers the way we hoped and longed for. It oftentimes does not match the expectation that we had. But yet even in the midst of that, the Lord says elsewhere in Lamentations 3, he says the Lord is good to those who wait for him. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, blessed are all of those who wait for him. Isaiah 49, 23, those that wait on me shall not be put to shame. Anna waits 84 years. Simeon waits a lifetime and, and the Lord says, I, I will not take you home to be with me. You will not die until your eyes have laid eyes. You have seen physically in person the Savior and the Messiah of the world. But all those years prior to that, Simeon waited and he waited and he waited and he waited. Anna waited for years you imagine her scenario there for a moment. I don't think uh, any male or female intends to get married and, and is only married for seven years and, and your spouse dies and now you spend the rest of your life, 84 years old, you, you spend it alone and in isolation with no family. Yet in the midst of that, Anna continues to worship. She continues to come. She continues to engage. All the while, she just keeps waiting. She keeps doing the things that, that God had told her to do. She keeps showing up. She, she keeps being faithful. The text goes on. I want to come back to a couple of things that we sort of glossed over. If you notice earlier in the text, he uses this phrase, the waiting for the consolation of Israel in verse 25. What Simeon and them were, were hoping for, the Messiah that they were longing for, they, they weren't really looking for someone to come save them from their sins as much as they were wanting someone to come and to deliver them from their political foes and adversaries. They wanted someone to come with a, with a sword and a hammer. They, they wanted someone to come and to overthrow the Romans and, and to overthrow and correct all the injustices that the people of God had experienced for close to 700 years to make the right, the wrong right when they, they go off into captivity in Assyria or Persia and all of these places, God is, they're saying, God, would you send us a deliverer 
that we can then live as a people and that we can worship you and, and not live under any kind of rule here in this moment. He says this, Jesus, they were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They wanted someone to come and to rule with might and with power, yet God doesn't send that. He sends a savior to, to deal with their hearts. He sends a savior to, to redeem them of their sins, to bring them back to the Father. And so all the, the prayers that they prayed, that the people gathered in the temple as they offered and made sacrifices on behalf of their eldest sons, all of these things pointing ultimately to the fact that in the midst of waiting, one day God was gonna answer and he was gonna hear them. And he was gonna deliver them. I don't know... Uh, where you find yourself today in a season of waiting. I know many of us could probably identify relationships that exist in our lives, people that we, we pray for, that we, that we wanna see them come to know Christ that are far from God. We, we see and examine relational conflict and we say, Lord, when will this be made right? When will this be reconciled? And until God answers that, that prayer, what, what do we, we do? We wait. And, Here's what I wanna to say to you about waiting in conclusion. Waiting is not a passive thing. Being a person that is patient in the time in which God wants to execute his prayers and his will, it is not a passive thing. In fact, I would argue and contend with you that perhaps one of the most difficult things to do in the Christian life is to be patient with God and just wait. It's one of the most fundamental, difficult things to do because we wanna get out ahead of God. We wanna outpace him in our life. We wanna outrun other people. If you're a mover or a shaker, you're a, a task-oriented person, you wanna see things happen and you wanna, you wanna get those things done. All the while, what God is trying to do is he's, he's trying to slow you down. He's trying to slow you down and, he, and he's just saying in this season of, of Advent, can you just, just wait? Wait on me to, to show myself to you. Wait on me to deliver. Wait on me to heal. And all the while, you are actively pursuing him in the context of his word and, and sitting at his feet each and every day and allowing him to, to speak tenderly and to cultivate the soil that exists within your heart so that your hearts would grow in faith and your heart would grow in trust. And so we wait. May it be said of us as it is said of Simeon that we are righteous and devout, not in our own eyes, but that we are a people that seek to live in a right manner towards God and we are devoted to the things of God and the, and the kingdom of God. And so we wait as we pursue being like Jesus each and every day. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would help us as a people to learn to just wait, to trust you when we don't know the answer, when we have the questions of why, when we deal with strife and turmoil and toilsome things, Father, I pray that you would, you would just help us be patient in this moment, that we would just wait upon you. And so now, Father, as we come before your table, we wait on your spirit, we wait on your presence. Now, would you meet with us? We pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen.